For the past couple of months, few months, we have been walking through the book of Genesis together on Sunday mornings, and we have made our way to chapter 6. And so if you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn there, and I want to put everybody on notice, get everybody a warning. Uh, I'm sure most of you know what this feels like. Sometimes maybe when your sinuses are messing with you and you feel like you're an inch away from saying something really, really dumb. You know, you're just in the fog. That's me this morning. And so I need God's help. And I have asked Aaron Poole to be my heresy filter this morning. And if it gets crazy, Taylor's going to take me out and Aaron's going to finish the sermon today. And I love this church. I was joking with Nick Stafford about that one time. And he said, man, you're asking me like, I need your permission. You get crazy in here. I'm taking you out. Bro. So that's the body of Christ. All right, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today. Lord, you are very great. God, you are clothed in splendor and majesty. You wrap yourself with light as with a garment. You, your glory is exalted above the heavens, Lord. Holy, holy, holy is your name. You are the sovereign creator of the ends of the earth and the entire universe. You dwell in inapproachable light, Lord. And our prayer today is that in all of your power and all of your splendor, God, that you would draw near to us today. That you'd come be our heavenly Father. Come to us, Lord, in intimacy. God, draw near to us today in mercy. <clears throat> God, we want to be instructed by you today. Lord Jesus, we want to be taught by you. God, we want to know you. Way past facts and way past information, we want to know you in truth, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask you to come meet with us today. God, teach us about your righteousness today, we pray. Increase our love for your righteousness, Lord. And increase our knowledge of you, our righteous God. God, I ask for humility today to serve your people, Lord. God, I pray that you would allow me to talk about you today as a broken sinner. God, I pray that this humility and this brokenness would come upon us as a church today, Lord. And that you would drive out any temptations to arrogant pride in our midst, Lord, as we consider your righteous wrath. God, awaken any among us today that need to be awakened. Let light shine out of darkness today, Lord. Remind us of who you are in power. And we just ask you again, Lord, let there be power in your house today as we open your word. Draw near to us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, here's where we're going this morning. In Genesis chapter 6, we are going to be talking about the great biblical flood that God sent on the earth in the days of Noah. And I feel like I need to say this more than any other story in the Bible. I feel like I need to remind you today that this story is not a cute children's story. Okay? And the reason that I say that is that in our culture, this is very common to make the story of the flood and the story of Noah a cute kid story that we teach kids to sing these little cute songs and, and the response is that's so cute okay and maybe some of you are here even today and maybe you grew up with this influence that you were told to sing these little cute kitty songs about the ark of Noah and about what God did in the days of Noah maybe some of you heard a song like this it's a real song my wife helped me with this okay <laughs> This is what we're teaching our children 
Not everyone, but some are teaching our children in this culture. Here's the song. The Lord said to Noah, there's going to be a floody floody. <laughs> Raise your hand if you've ever sung it. Told you. <laughs> so get those children out of the muddy muddy. The Lord told Noah to build an arky arky and to build it out of gopher barky barky. The animals, they came in by twosie twosies. And it rained and rained for 40 nights and daisies. Almost drove those animals crazy, crazy. So this is, this is what we teach our children to sing. About the great flood where the God of the Bible destroys every human being in His creation besides eight people. And we teach them cutesy songs to sing. And so there's the reminder for you this morning. There's nothing cute about this story. okay? And that's just a silly example of how easy it is to miss the entire points of Scripture. There's nothing cute about this story. This story today is literally a revelation of the God of the Bible. It shows you what He is like. It shows us His nature. And we, as disciples of Jesus, we want to know Him. In every way that we He reveals Himself, we know that our God is perfect and we want to know Him. And every glimpse of Him we get in Scripture, we want to worship Him and we want to love Him. And so this story today gives us a glimpse of the Lord God as God the righteous judge. Okay? That's who He is in the flood. And yet simultaneously, at the same time, and we saw this again and again in Genesis. He is God, the righteous judge in the flood. And yet simultaneously, in this same story, He is God, the gracious Redeemer. And He is both. He is the God who judges sinners. And He is the God who saves sinners. He was the God who judges sinners in the garden. He was the God who judges sinners when He, when he judged Cain. And yet He is the merciful one from the Garden of Eden. And we see both glimpses of this in this story. Now, before we dive in, I want to spend some time and I want to show you that this dual glimpse of God, this dual thing, God is judge. He's the righteous judge. And God is the gracious redeemer. I want to show us that that is exactly what Moses intends to highlight in this, in this story. And I want to prove it to you because there's something real powerful when we know from God's Word exactly how we are supposed to read a certain story and exactly how we are supposed to interpret it. So, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is the author of the book of Genesis. And one of the things that he does in the story of the flood is he uses... A literary device that I'm going to tell you about this morning called a chiasmus. Okay? This is a Hebrew literary device. And you see this quite a bit in the Old Testament. And here's what I want to show you. Okay? That in God's Word, this beautiful language, Hebrew, that He reveals Himself by, there is a way to add emphasis, a special emphasis. In a story, not just by content and, the, and, and what is said, but also by structure and the way that it is presented. <clears throat> and so this chiasmus is a literary structure that allows you to place special emphasis in the way that a story is presented. <clears throat> and the basic chiasmic structure is you have a point or a plot and then another point or a plot and all the way down the line. Maybe A, B, C, D, E, F. And then you have this main thrust. And then the points or the plots, they literally reverse all the way out. And so you have basically this triangle. Okay. Now I have on the back of your study guide this morning that this story of the flood is, a, it is given to us with, with this chiasmic detail. And it is amazing. It is amazing the amount of detail that Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, perfectly lays this out in that way. Lays out the points of the plots, and then you've got 
Genesis chapter 8 verse 1. And then he reverses all the way back through to the end of the story of the flood. Now the point of the chiasmus is that the very middle is the emphasis. That is where Moses is screaming to us. Okay, Genesis chapter 8 verse 1 says God remembered uh, Noah. God remembered Noah. That's the hinge for the, for the whole story. And this is what I want you to see this morning. This is the very center. It's where God remembers Noah in the midst of the flood. And what that verse does is it cuts this story of the flood literally in half. And the first half of this story is the revelation of the righteous wrath of God. God the righteous judge. That's the first half of this story. And then in the middle of this righteous judgment, God remembers Noah. And then the back half of this story is the revelation of God's gracious salvation to Noah and all who are in the ark. So the story of the flood is this dual theme. And this morning we're going to zone in on part one. We're going to cut this story in half. And we are going to peek into and lean into this revelation of the righteousness of God. That's where we're going. Now... The Apostle Peter also interprets the flood for us in exactly the same way. This dual thing. God is judge and God is Savior. Listen to 2 Peter 2, verse 5. He did not spare the ancient world. He's the judge. But preserved Noah. He's the Savior. A herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Then listen to what Peter says in verse 9. He says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The God of the Bible is judge and the God of the Bible is Savior. He knows how to do both. This is who He is. And so we want to we wanna know Him. We want to worship Him this morning. Let's start in verse 9. And we got a lot to read today. So as we're reading this, these chapters of Scripture, I want you to read them along with me. I'm trying to read them as fast as I can. Genesis chapter 6. We'll go verses 9 through 13. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And so before the flood comes, God makes it very clear in His Word the reasons of why the, why the flood is about to hit planet earth. And Ryan touched on this a little bit last week. The reason is the great, great sinfulness of man. And already in, in chapter 6, verse 5, God told us, that the condition had gotten this bad. That this is how he describes it in verse 5. Every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And if you're, you're here last week, you, remi- you remember this. Ryan just camped out on every one of those phrases. And you just think about that. He could have said man was evil. But you have all these descriptive phrases that he is hammering in. At the very core of his being, man is only evil continually. This is the great sinfulness of man. Verse 10 tells us that planet earth at this point is literally filled with violence. And that ought to be, that word filled ought to to take us back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. Right after God created the man and the woman. And and verse 27, chapter 1 verse 27 tells us that he created man and woman in his image. And then the very next verse, verse 28, God blesses and commands the man and the woman and He tells them to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. 
And we remember what we talked about here. What God is commanding them is to fill the earth with His image. The God of the Bible loves Himself so much. He loves His glory so much that He desires to fill and to flood planet earth with His likeness, with His image. And what we see happen here, not even five chapters later in the Bible, this is the exact opposite. Instead of filling the earth with the image of God, rebellious humanity is filling the earth with violence. They have completely failed the mission that God has given them. They have completely rejected the purpose for which they were created. And then three times in verses 11 and 12, three times Moses uses the word corrupt to describe the condition of humanity. This word literally means that they are ruined, that they are to a point to where they are useless. This is the word. Mankind has ruined themselves. Having completely rejected God's purposes, they are now without purpose, useless in planet earth. And then here's what we get. The God of Scripture is patient. Y'all agree with that? Y'all know that about God? He is patient. He is merciful. He is kind. He is long-suffering. But this is an example, verse 13 is an example and a reminder for us that His patience is not infinite. He does not have unlimited patience. He is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. It takes Him a long, long time. He is patient, but there is a moment where the, where the patience of the God of Scripture runs out. And here's what we see in verse 13. That God determines, because of the condition of humanity that God determines to make an end of all flesh by destroying mankind. Now here's what I want us to camp out on because really that's our whole theme for today. That's who the God of the Bible is. There's no explaining your way around it. There's such a temptation when you hear about this. He, he just said that he has made a decision where he is about to end everybody. That He is about to destroy man and earth with man. And I just want to ask you this morning, how are you doing with that? How are you doing with that attribute of God? Is that hard for you to square? Of how can He be good and yet make an end and destroy rebellious humanity? Where are you at on that? Where are you at on the righteousness of God? Everything about Him is perfect. When there's a problem there, it's on our end. It's on our end of not understanding Him. Not understanding His truth rightly. Where are you at on that? Do you feel a need to apologize for God when you, when you hear about statements like this in Scripture? Or to soften the blow? And to make it sound softer than it really is. Where are you at on this? This is what we're going to linger over today. He makes a decision to make an end of humanity and to destroy humanity from the earth. This is the God of the Bible. It's not until verse 17 that we are told that He will make this end. This end is going to be brought about by a global flood. This is how He's going to do it. He said He's going to destroy man. And this is helpful for me. The word for destroy in verse 13 is the same Hebrew word for corrupt in verses 11 and 12. Remember that word that we says it means ruined. And what God says that He's about to do to sinful humanity is He's about to do the same thing to them that they've already done to themselves. They have ruined themselves and now God is about to ruin them. And that is just a, that's just a, a reminder for us that Moses is telling us that He is giving them what they deserve. And God's punishment is always like this in Scripture. The punishment always fits the crime with God. Because His judgments are always righteous. They are always perfect. And that's why they're always good. He is giving them what they have brought on themselves. In the midst of this word of judgment, remember how we said this, this dual theme? This dual glimpse of God in this story. 
Well, look at this. In the midst of this judgment, global destruction, the next set of verses stands as God's salvation offer. He's not, not only the judge, He's also the Redeemer. Let's read this. Verse 14. We'll go all the way through verse 22. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it lower, second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wife with you. And every living thing of all flesh. You shall bring two of every sort into the ark. To keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds. And of the animals according to their kinds. Of every creeping thing of the ground. According to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you. And you shall keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. And it shall serve for you and for them as food. And Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And so in the midst of this global judgment from God, God extends an offer of grace and an offer of mercy and an offer of salvation in the form of this ark. This massive wooden structure that would float upon the waters of judgment. And once in verse 19 and again in verse 20, God tells Noah that the purpose of this ark is to keep things alive. So in the midst of the death sentence, you get this promise of life that everything in this ark is going to live. And in verse 18, God calls this, this, this is His covenant with Noah. His holy promise that he extends to Noah. Everything in the ark is going to live and not die. This is the mercy of God in the midst of judgment. In the midst of the flood. This is the mercy extended. The ark itself. This is a massive wooden structure. The biggest wooden boat ever built even to this day. 450 feet long. 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. So massive that 522 railroad cars could park in it. Think about that. You've seen a train before in your life? Car, 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 car. Imagine one, 522 long. Every one of them could fit in this structure that God commanded Noah to build. We have larger boats today, but that's only because in the 19th century we... God gave us the ability to build modern day boats out of steel. But this is the largest wooden boat ever built by far. Massive, but it's a simple design. And many people commenting on the ark say that it really looks like a massive coffin floating out in the water. It's a rectangular box, flat bottom, nothing special about it. point was not to be aesthetically pleasing. The point was to keep things alive three different levels many different interior rooms this is showing you God's grace that he wants all of his creation two, two of all of his creatures to be kept alive and God's going to make a new start on planet earth this is his mercy the ark was made out of gopher wood and there's a lot of speculation about this. I had a guy one time said, yeah, this so-and-so is made out of so-and-so. Same, same wood that Noah used on, on the ark. Nobody knows what, what species gopher wood is. And, and really, I was helped by this. That's probably tracking down, down the wrong trail. The, the Greek Old Testament, the, the Septuagint, translates this phrase as square timber. Square timber. 
And I think the point there is not so much a species of wood as God commanding Noah that he's to use finished timber. Just like a gopher, choose the bark off of stuff and shapes and forms things. That this would be an effort of masterful carpentry. Masterful engineering. You just try to imagine that. The amount of trees that it would take to join this structure together. Massive amount of trees. No modern day machines. Even today. I have a construction background. This is... This is Awesome thought to me. Even today, we, we don't know how they built some stuff that they built. Y'all know that? Pyramids. We got speculative guesses of how they did it. If we had what they had, we still couldn't do it. And we have no idea how he did what he did. No idea. We could not do what he did. Even modern day wooden shipbuilders cannot even touch the scale of the ark. It's the largest wooden structure Ever built because of the reference back in verse, back in verse three, that reference to 120 years. Almost all commentators take this to mean that this ark was so massive and so carefully joined together that it took Noah over a hundred years to build this. Did you catch that? He spent over a hundred. Years building this salvation boat, this ark. And I want to ask you why. Why did he do that? How much, how much time in his life did he devote to this? And the question becomes why? What drove him? Listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. This is an insight into his motivation. Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith Noah, being warned of God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so why did he spend a hundred years, a century of his life, tirelessly working Building this massive structure. And the answer is he believed God. God warned him that a global flood was coming. And that warning, it wasn't just information to Noah. It pierced him. He had fear and he believed that God was serious about his judgment. And then the other side of that is true. God made that salvation offer in the form of this ark. And Noah heard it and he understood it. He understood it as a fact. He understood the details of it, but, it, but more happened. It pierced his heart, and he believed that if he built that structure, that God would save him from this judgment. He was a man of faith. Our passage opened in verse 9, and Noah was called a righteous man. And that verse in Hebrews, we just, that's my daughter. Hey. No, we, we love babies here. Don't worry about that if your baby starts crying. The righteous man that Noah is announced to be in verse 9. Hebrews just told us how that happens. Okay, There's a wrong way to understand that. Because Hebrews just told us that, that the righteousness that Noah had was the righteousness that God gave him by faith. This is the only way from the very beginning of the Bible... That God has ever rescued anybody from judgment. Is God grants righteousness to those who believe Him. This is why Noah is righteous. And this is why Noah is saved through this judgment. His faith in God. It produces this careful obedience. This persistent obedience to God. For over a hundred years tirelessly building this ark. And that's exactly what, what obedience is. It's the fruit of faith. It's, the, it's, it's a mark of authentic saving faith. You obey God when you believe God. Okay? This is the fruit of grace and the fruit of faith in Noah's life. Look at verse 22. Noah did all that God commanded him. Chapter 7 verse 5. Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. 
This is, this is the mark of a true believer. This is the authenticating mark in our life that we have truly believed the gospel. Righteousness is never by obeying God, but our obedience to God is a mark that we have believed God. This is the mark that we see in His life. He obeyed. And God commanded him in verse verse 14. He commanded Noah to cover the ark with pitch. Okay? We don't know exactly what this substance was. Some type of tar. Some type of asphalt. And Noah was to smear it all over the ark. Inside and out. And to make it waterproof. And this is a fascin- This is absolutely fascinating to me. And I hope it's encouraging to you. The word for pitch, Hebrew word for pitch, is the, it's the same word group, the noun and the verb, as the word for atonement. Both of those words mean to cover. To cover. And so, the, so here's what God's saying. Even in the details of how the ark is built, God is foreshadowing salvation through atonement. And the way that God... The God of the Bible will always preserve, and this is how He will always save sinners, is He will provide a covering. He will provide a covering for them. Just as the pitch covered the ark and and protected from the waters of judgment, the righteousness that God gives covers us and protects us from the wrath of God. It turns away God's wrath. Even in the details of the ark. Do you not love this? That the entire Bible is about Jesus. Even the, even the construction plans of the ark. The entire Bible is about Christ. It's an awesome thing. This is God's warning about judgment. This is His salvation offer in the form of the ark. And God waits over a hundred years for humanity to respond to His warnings. For this ark to be built by Noah. And then we read in chapter 7, verse 1. We'll go through verse 5. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of clean animals. The male and his mate. And a pair of the animals that are not clean. The male and his mate. And seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also. Male and female. To keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights. And every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So we've already seen that Noah was a righteous man. You see that in verse 9? Second Peter chapter 2 verse 5 tells us that Noah was also a herald of righteousness. That means that Noah was a preacher in his generation. Not only did he obey God and build this ark that God commanded him, he was a mouthpiece for the Lord God in his generation. And for over a hundred years, Noah warned his generation about the judgment to come. That the God that made all things has, has determined to make an end of all flesh. But He's given humanity a salvation offer in the form of this ark. He preached it in his generation. For over a hundred years, He was faithful to announce this in the midst of planet earth. And then in this passage, we see that God... There was a point and God said, you got seven days, seven more days to respond to this warning. And then I'm dropping the hammer. You got seven days, seven days left. Then God caused all the animals to come to Noah. This is a miracle, just like he did in the Garden of Eden. You remember this where where God brought the animals to Adam and that Adam names the animals. He does the same thing to Noah. He brings these animals to Noah. This is a powerful sovereign miracle of God and he's he sees that Noah is helped in exactly what he commands him to do they enter the ark just as God commands and then I want you to see this in verse 16 get your eyes on this in verse 16 they go in just as God commanded 
And then verse 16 says, The Lord shut him in. The Lord God shut them in the ark. This is an absolutely amazing verse of Scripture. Praise the living God for this. This is full of pregnant truth for us. Number one is this. That that verse teaches us that Noah's faith in God. He was so confident in God that he builds a boat so massive and a door so big that he knows he can't even shut it. That if God doesn't shut him in, he will drown. This is his faith. This is the same rock that we are cut from. You know that? Where is this at in your life? Expressions of this. If God doesn't show up, I'm toast. I am done. Or you're leaning against the Lord God with everything that you have. Where is this at in your prayer life? And your desire to serve God and to be used of God, that you lean against Him. Lord, Lord, do what I can never do in my life. He is the living God. He's the living God. This is Noah's confidence in God. Let that encourage you. But it also shows us something about God. And I believe that this is a picture of God's sovereignty and salvation. That when He puts the seal on His finished work of salvation on the ark, He makes sure no human hands are even touching that door. And He slams it shut and no one can take credit for what He does. This is what He does in our life. He finishes His work of salvation. And no man can boast. We can't boast at all for saving ourselves. We didn't help God do anything. He's sovereign in His work of salvation in our life. He finishes His work. And the last thing I want to encourage you with is this. This speaks to the security. Once the Lord God slams that door shut, puts the seal, the sovereign seal of the salvation mark, on that ark. There is nothing in all creation that's going to harm anything inside that ark. Because God Himself slams the door shut. This is how secure we are in Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Let that encourage you this morning. The Lord shut Him in. And then this century long prophecy... About this warning that God was about to flood the earth. Here's where it breaks forth into fulfillment. God fulfills His prophetic word. We'll pick it up in verse 6. Chapter 7, verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life. In the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to its kind and every creeping thing that creeps on earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. And the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. This is the worst judgment that this world has ever known. Up to this point in history, there are no rivals to 
to what you just read. This is the, the most terrifying thing that has ever been unleashed on planet earth. It's impossible for me to even, to even adequately, to even begin to adequately describe the judgment and the tragedy of the flood of Noah. John Piper, this is the best I could, I, I, that I heard. John Piper calls it a global aquatic holocaust that God unleashes on planet earth. This event is cataclysmic in the sense that it involves God's entire creation. The entire planet. Something happens either with the seafloor or under the seafloor. Either the seafloor all across the globe heaves up or there's some type of ancient underground reservoirs of water that explode on planet earth. The great deeps are busted open. And not only this, but there is global torrential, torrential downpours like the world has never seen all over planet earth. The heavens are literally dumped out on the earth. And then verse 21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is the part where, where I, this is where we need God's help. This is where we want to press in and we don't, we don't want to just understand what happened. We want to feel the right things about God. And so here's where we want to press in this morning. Do you feel the weight of what you just read? Do you feel the terrible sadness of these phrases? All flesh, all mankind, everything died, blotted out, never to be remembered again, except for eight people, seven chapters in the Bible. God kills every person in creation except for eight people, seven chapters in the book. Do you see that the last thing, the last thing in your mind right now, ought to be some cutesy song about animals marching up the boat. Do you feel the weight of this? This is the judgment of God, the righteous wrath of God. He flashes forth in a global judgment. The point is clear. The destruction of the flood is absolutely universal. All flesh under heaven, everything on earth, Outside of that ark, he destroyed it. He destroyed it. Look at verse 23. This is an important detail. I want to remind you that without apology, the God of Scripture takes personal responsibility for what we just read about. He is the one that blots out every single person not the work of Satan. This is the work of God. The God of the Bible is the executioner of sinners. And He makes no apologies for this. Globally. Universal judgment. Do you see this about Him? Do you see this about Him? Do you feel the weight of His holiness? Do you feel the weight of His holiness? Are you reminded even now of what you have been saved from in Jesus? That you have been saved from terrible wrath, righteous, eternal judgment in Christ. This is a confrontation of the false God in our culture that judges no one. This is the God of Scripture. The God, the righteous judge. 
So I want us to transition today from this story and I want us to begin to apply it to our lives. And as we transition, I want to remind us again, this is not a zoo story. Okay? Not a story about animals. This is mainly a story about God. In fact, if you read the story of the flood, nobody else ever speaks. Noah never even speaks in this story. It's only God. It's a revelation of the God of Scripture. And this flood stands to us as a testimony. It's the worst judgment that's ever happened in history. And it stands to all humanity as a testimony of the wickedness of sin and of the judgment of God. It's a standing reminder in human history. This really happened. I want to help some of us. I want to encourage you this morning. This really happened. There's a tendency and a temptation to to read stories like this as as so far removed from your daily existence that they're almost mythological in your mind. Even if on paper you would say that you believe every word of Scripture, it seems so distant from you. And I'm reminding you, this is real history, literal history. This really happened. Many of you, maybe you've never heard of this before, but all across planet Earth, in almost every culture, do you know that almost every culture in this world has some form of a flood narrative in their culture? you know that? You can go places on planet earth that have never even dreamed of a Bible. Never even dreamed of, of, of articulating the gospel. And they can tell you this ancient flood story where God... Judged the earth and only one's family survived. And the means of salvation was a boat. I have a chart on the back of your study guide. And you can dig into this in your own free time. And I've just given you a little slice of these cultures and these people groups. All across the planet. That there's extra biblical evidence just laced into human history. This flood is real. That's what I'm highlighting here. It's real. There's a mountain of extra biblical evidence for a global flood. And that ought to really disturb anyone here that rejects Christianity. That is slow to believe the Bible. What do you do with stuff like that? What do you do when almost all creation confirms God's word? What do you do with that? This is powerful evidence for a historical flood. But not only that, a global flood. Listen to James Boyce. He says hundreds of flood stories abound throughout the world in various cultures and are therefore evidence not merely of the historicity of the flood, but also its its universal extent. And then he says, since the people having these stories presumably have them because of their common descent from the flood survivors. Sorry, guys. We can go, Michaelis, if you want. Can everybody hear me? Yeah? Alright, so are y'all with me? That God has literally covered the earth with this historical evidence of these flood narratives. That is an amazing thing. That I encourage you this morning. That this Bible that you read, it's real. It is real history. That's the point. But I want to give you one more piece of evidence. And this is the most powerful evidence for the historical, literal, global flood. And you find this in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 38 and 39. Says, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Who's talking in that verse? Who's talking in that verse? Christ, Jesus. 
That is an example of the resurrected, sinless Son of God confirming for you that the, that the flood was historical and literal. Jesus said, Jesus said this, that the flood came and swept them all away. And that ought to be a deal sealer for you. He's the sinless one. Nobody in all of God's creation is smarter than Jesus. Nobody is more enlightened than Jesus. You don't know more than Jesus. And the flood is real for Christ. Liberal scholars that try to play games with the Bible, they think they're smarter than Christ. Do you really think that you can be smarter than Jesus? It's a historical, literal event. But not only that, in, the, in, in those verses, Jesus told us it's real history, but He took it farther than that because He also gave us a warning in the same verse that not only is it real, literal history, it's real, literal history that points to something in the future, the final judgment of God. And so Jesus tells us that the flood, this is what it means for you, this is for us. This is a standing preview for all of humanity of the final judgment of God. The day of the Lord. The flood of Noah points to the day of the Lord. Peter tells us exactly the same thing. 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 5 through 7. Listen close. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same Word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So Peter tells us that the same Word of God that produces the judgment in the flood is going to be the same Word that God sends in the last day's judgment. And he compares this global flood of water with this last day's global flood of fire that's going to engulf the earth. This is what the Bible... It tells us how we're supposed to interpret this story. You're supposed to read this story and you are supposed to think about the final judgment. Christ taught us this. The final judgment, the flood of Noah will be almost patty cake compared to the final judgment. And I say that not as a joke. The flood waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days after God drowned every human being except for those who were in the ark. But the final judgment, God has promised that He will punish every sinner with eternal punishment in the lake of fire that burns forever. It's a preview of the judgment to come. There's nothing cute about this story, especially when we see it in the way that we're supposed to see it. Children are supposed to understand the story of the flood as the revelation of the righteous wrath of God that will certainly judge sinners. You're supposed to read it this way. It's supposed to th make you think about the judgment to come. And that's what we're doing today. That's the reminder for each of us. Unless this story causes you to consider the final judgment, you have not received it rightly. You have misunderstood it. This is how Jesus told us to use this story. And I want to close, and I'll, as we do that, I want to push that you, would, that you would see this personal. That you would see this as a personal reminder for you. And what I mean by that is there's a way for, for these truths to float over our heads. And when we say that the God of Scripture is the God that hates sin and punishes sin, I want that to be even sharper in your life that He hates your sin and He will punish your sin. Make it personal. He will surely punish your sin. And here's what I mean. I'm not a prophet. I'm not. I don't have secret knowledge about people in this room. But I do know that every single one of you that is listening to me right now 
Every single one of you will stand before God the judge and you will give an account of your life. I know this from God's Word. From God's Word, we know this. And I want to I want to give us, I want to be a voice in your ear right now causing you to consider this final judgment. And I have two particular groups and I, I, I want us all to consider these things. But I want to sharpen the warning and two, two specific groups. I, I, want, I want you to press in this morning and to consider this. And the first is this. Unconverted church members. Nobody wants to be that. Nobody's slinging rocks. There's nothing in me right now that, that is operating out of trying to be hardcore. I'm not trying to make a, a Paul Washer video on YouTube right now. I'm not. I'm loving you. I'm loving you. And it is a great concern, right? Of the thought that we would do life with people that we call brothers and sisters. That in fact, they're, they're not really brothers and sisters. Unconverted church members will stand before God the righteous judge. And they will be punished for eternity. Because they are outside of Christ. And so I want every one of us to consider freshly this morning. Here's the warning. The warning is, is you've heard me say this before, dogpile Christianity. And that just because you're in close proximity to the things of God and that people that love Jesus, it does not mean that you're saved. It doesn't. Just because you're married to somebody that loves Christ doesn't mean you're saved. Just because you have brothers and sisters that you love, your closest friends on planet earth, love Christ, it doesn't mean that you're saved. And so the warning, dogpile Christianity. Y'all, y'all, almost every one of you have seen this, right? Football games. Somebody makes an awesome defensive play, tackles, and then all of a sudden you got bodies flying on, the, flying on top of each other. and That's called a dogpile. And then every once in a while, you'll see this, you know, wired up dude. And he jumps on top of the pile, and then he gets off and just throws his hands up in the air. Like he, like he did everything. Like he did everything. And there's something in us when we see that. And we're thinking like, dude, you didn't even make the tackle. You know, like, you just jumped on like five seconds after the whistle blew. And you're walking around celebrating with the dudes that actually did stuff. And that's the warning that I want to give you. That you don't spend 30, 40 years on planet earth and you learn to talk the talk and to even to, to go along with everything that's happening. And, and, and when we celebrate, you're celebrating. But that connection never gets made that you don't know Christ. That's the warning. I want us to consider this. I want you to consider that this morning. Unconverted church members will suffer eternal punishment. And I want us all to wake up and to deal sincerely with Christ. There is no one in here. We have commandments in God's Word that we are to examine ourselves if we're in the faith. There is no one in here that doesn't need to do that. Are you really in Christ? That's the question. And the second group is this, unconverted church attenders. I'm not picking on anybody here, but I want to be as serious as we know how to be about the final judgment to come. That's how Jesus told us to handle this passage. And so I want you to spend time today thinking about the final judgment. You will stand before God. And every person outside of Jesus will be punished. So the warning to you. We've had a lot of people past few months and they're peeking their head into Grace Community Church. Lots of visitors. And we praise the living God for that. That's why we're here. We want to be a witness in our generation. We want to see the Lord Jesus save souls. And day by day that He adds to the church. We couldn't be happier about that. But the same warning is really to you. That being around the things of God has never saved anybody. And maybe just to put it in a different way. I want to remind you that knowing... Don't ever confuse these two things. Knowing facts about Jesus is not the same thing as knowing Jesus. It's not. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 talks about lost humanity being blinded to the glory of Christ. You can know facts galore about Jesus and have very little heat in your soul, passion in your soul for Christ. And just like that generation that died in the flood, 
Knowing facts about the ark and knowing facts about the coming judgment didn't save anybody. Didn't save anybody. Only the ones that turned their back on the world and in faith and God's promise walked into the ark and the door slammed shut by the hand of God Himself. These were the only ones that were saved. And the picture for you is this, that you all outside of Christ will be punished. You have to, you have to know Him. You have to know Him. Almost saved equals eternally lost. Cultural Christian equals eternal punishment. And I say that with brokenness. As a, I couldn't say that with any more serious. There's nothing playing around. Eternal punishment to all who don't know Christ. The day of the final judgment is not a myth or a fairy tale or a symbolic, weird, biblical story. It is a literal event. God's warning in Genesis 6 was fulfilled by a literal event. And God's warning about final punishment will be fulfilled by a literal event. Nothing symbolic about it. It will be a real historical event. The judgment to come. The God of the Bible will punish all unrepentant sinners with unspeakable eternal punishment. Revelation chapter 20. You just listen to this. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. And from His presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged. Each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So just like Noah's generation, 100 years God warned that generation of the coming judgment. For 2,000 years, the God of all mercy has waited patiently for all nations, all humanity to respond to His salvation offer in Jesus. And I'm reminding you today, this is your only hope. This is your only hope. There was only one offer of salvation in the flood. And there's only one offer of eternal salvation. And your only hope is to have God's wrath for your sins poured out on a substitute. That's the only hope you have. And the only one qualified to bear your punishment is Jesus Christ. Your only hope. He is the true ark of salvation. And just as the waters of judgment were kept out of that ark because of that, that salvation ark. He is the true ark. He is, the, he is your only hope. He is the only one that can keep away God's eternal punishment. And Christ is ready to save. He's ready to save any and all who repent and trust in Him. This is the day of mercy. This is the day of mercy. The day of grace. And the reminder is that there's going to come a time where God removes the offer forever. Even this week, a couple of us were reminded of a, of a Saudi student that a couple of people here were ministering to, and she's dead. She is dead now. You have no promise that you're going to be alive and die at 65 or 85 God's patience is not infinite. And there is coming a day where He will remove the offer of mercy. So let the, let the flood of Noah drive us to Christ today. Even as Christians all across this room, I want us to be reminded that Jesus swallowed terrible eternal wrath for us. Praise to the living God. Praise to Christ for what He's done. 
It's like the ark swallowed away that judgment. Christ swallowed it all for us. And there, no water comes in and harms any in the ark. And no judgment from God is going to hurt or harm any that are in Christ. Romans 8, verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Forever secure. And I want to close with one last reminder. And this is an application for us as the church. And here's the reminder. That we want to love this world well. And, and in doing that, we want to be just like Jesus. Just like Him. We want to be like our Lord. And the encouragement that I want to give to all of us, each of us, is that we would, be, that we would faithfully love this world by faithfully bearing witness of the judgment to come just like Jesus did. Just like He did. He talked about the final judgment because He loved the world. And the warning is this, that this is the part of the gospel that you are always going to be tempted to downplay. The righteous wrath of God. This is why the biblical gospel needs the boldness of the Holy Spirit that we would declare these things to all nations. And so here's the reminder. Jesus did this and Jesus commands that each of us would announce the judgment to come. Two verses. Acts chapter 10 verse 42. And He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Commanded by Christ to bear witness to the judgment. Acts 17.31 He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. The one who was resurrected from the dead is going to judge every human being. Jesus will judge every person that has ever existed. That's our message. That's part of the Gospel. May God help us to faithfully and lovingly and humbly, nothing proud, nothing arrogant in us, humbly loving our generation and bearing witness of the judgment to come. May God help us to be faithful to do this. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word. And God, we thank You, Lord, for revealing Yourself to us. God, we count it as our highest good to know You. And we count all things as lost, Lord, in this world compared with the surpassing worth of knowing You, Lord Jesus. There's no, there's no one like You. Help us to love You, Lord, for all of Your glorious perfections. Help us to praise You even for Your righteousness, God. God, I pray that You would work among us today. And I pray for my brothers and sisters. God, I pray that You would, that you would keep any of us who are in Christ God, I pray that You would protect them from doubt and Your work of salvation in their life. I pray that you, would, that you would give them gospel balm and gospel comfort, Lord. Don't let anything that was shared from Your Word today disturb any who are in You, Lord. Help them to rise up and worship You and to boast in You, God. And God, we ask, Lord, if there are any among us that are outside of Christ, we ask for Your power, Holy Spirit, that You in love and mercy, that You would flash forth Your power to convict. And that You would alarm. And I ask You, Lord Jesus, that You would disturb them. God, protect us from false conversions, even in our families, God. Be merciful to us, Lord. God, help us to bear witness to Your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.